word in the recording. I recorded this in my office, which is a fantastic office in the middle of Auckland, but a terrible sound studio. Try to minimize the extraneous noises and the echoey effect as much as possible. And luckily, most of the time Davi was speaking, so you will hear very little of my echoey voice on this episode. Enjoy. And now, business games. Welcome to another edition of Business Games Podcast, where we apply game theory thinking to business to help you make better decisions under uncertainty. This is episode three of season one, the experimental one. This season, we explore all things experimental in business. Over the past few years, there has been an increased volume of business articles about experimentation. Across roughly half a dozen episodes, we'll look at business experiments and their benefits for decision-making from different angles, corporate versus SME, startup versus established, business versus academia, and so on. As we make our journey, we'll look at uh, three broad themes. Why now? In other words, haven't business people always experimented? What, uh, second, what are the limits? Three, where and how best to set up experiments or experimental thinking in business. Every episode follows a similar pattern of four sections. The first two are an intro followed by a deeper dive. Years ago, I was trained to be a professor, so section three is filled with homework, which comes in two flavors. One, books to read, things to um, listen to. And two, practices to embed in daily lives of decision makers. The knowledge on its own isn't enough. You need to build muscle memory for practicing these things. The fourth section is any plug by the guest of things that relate to the topics discussed that could be a benefit to the audience. Today, we're happy to be joined by somebody that I regard highly as a leader, an experienced senior executive with a multinational track record of transformation projects in whose business unit I had the privilege to work when he was the Chief Information Officer of Westpac New Zealand. For our international listeners, Westpac is one of the four largest Australasian banks. Davi Willifer. Thank you for doing this, Davi. Thank you very much, Andre. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> and thank you for doing it again. And uh, <laughs> the, the first time we recorded it, it was a fantastic recording, but uh, the audio got corrupted. So we'll try to recapture the magic. Now, before we get to experimentation, I wanted to come at this if from a different angle. Its relevance will become apparent soon. I hope, well, I promise actually. I hope to be able to do it justice. A couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken, you were in charge of several thousand people as a leader of your business unit when the Christchurch shooting took place. One of my longest tenured employees has an aunt in Christchurch, yet I can't imagine the weight of the responsibility with many more people, some of whom had families affected personally. I remember being impressed with David uh, as the CEO. He obviously took on the central visible role. Yet your business unit was one of the larger ones, and these must have been a lot of, there must have been a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty in a rapidly developing situation. Do you mind talking about your approach as a leader in crisis, protecting the team at the time of uncertainty? What decisions did you have to make? 
and how did you go about doing it, both individually and as part of the corporate senior leadership team? Finally, what did you learn from dealing with this tragedy that carried over? I know it's a multi-layered, dense question. Actually, there will be a lot of these, as, as we discovered last time. Feel free to address any or all of the points, or maybe none of the points. Uh... Yeah, um, that uh, that indeed is a is a memory etched into our into our collective recollection of of nineteen ninety. What was it, twenty nineteen? Um, you know, a a massive tragedy, um, and in in the situation, one's one's first responses. Um, are guided by uh, ensuring that those within our care um, are okay, right? So the uh, the response to any crisis uh, here, I would think of things like um, many of the earthquakes that we've that we've dealt with over the years, uh, and and many of the others is first to figure out, you know, who the people are that we know that were involved either peripherally or directly uh, or affected by by such a situation, and to figure that out as quickly as you possibly can. Um, I, I always like to use or think of things like airline safety briefings as good guides to how we go about radiating our influence and our and our impact uh, to help in situations like this. Being that if you are not, if you or your team are not okay first, then you can't help others. Um, so if our first response, uh, firstly, was collective, not individually. Uh, you mentioned David stepped forward. Uh, David certainly is the face and, and the, the leader of our business. Uh, and as such, we didn't really respond as individual business units. We we responded as a team, with the with the first priority being: uh, are any of our team uh, victims of this of this tragedy, uh, or any of their families victims of this tragedy? Tragedy, and if they were, how would we go about reaching out to help them first? Now, that's important for a number of dimensions besides for the human ones. Is that if it was necessary for us or possible for us to then reach out and help the community that was involved, which we eventually did. Um, then those would be the very people that we would need to do the reaching out, right? So we need to, we would need to know whether or not they needed help before we could offer their help to others. Um, and of course, humanistically making sure that they and their, their families are, are okay. But once once one's dealt with the the first shock and the first uh, and the first response to such an event, uh, it very quickly turns to uh, everybody else in the organization, knowing that potentially virtually everyone in the organization knew somebody who was affected directly or indirectly um, uh, by the events. Um, it then turns to leaders to start getting around with uh, with messaging, uh, firstly, messaging of support, messaging of, of if not comfort, at least uh, certainty that uh, this is not an event that's going passing us by without us having a view and having a response and having support available. Um, and that communication takes many, many forms. It's uh, both formal communication, which is essentially what you described, um, David, as being the front of our, the face of our organization to the press, to the public, to the communities, uh, but then also internally, um, very much a hands-on process of leading in small rooms and big rooms, conversations, checking in phone calls uh, with individuals and teams um, for two reasons. The first is to show the solidarity of the organization around, around our people and our community. Uh, but then secondly, also to hear concerns, fears, um, you know, uncertainties, and to be able to at the very least have, have conversations about those, and then to create the environment of, of support for those people who are dealing with trauma, which is not something that, that, that one should do as a, as a hobby or as, a, as, as an amateur. That this is a very this is a, a very significant dimension of, of our human psyche that needs very often professional help and and important to understand where we can actually offer that professional help. 
So the, the process of dealing with a crisis is actually a well-structured process and it's a well-understood one. Um, the part that is not in the textbooks is the part where it comes down to us dealing with actual people within those processes. You know, the, the depth of the emotion of the conversations and, and, and feeling people's angst and their, and their, and their, and their trauma come out um, is what I describe as, as, as full contact leadership. Uh, it's the process of, of being a servant and a leader and creating the conditions uh, for people to, to recover and to, and to recreate the safety that they had before these traumatic events. Last time we talked, you meant there were a couple of points that that um, I, I would like to uh, uh, to just re-remember. Re you said something along the lines that uh, there there is in these situations, and I'm going to relate it to the servant leader versus kind of a hero leader, right? There is a tendency to want to do a lot. You said to arrive with a large corporate presence. And mm -hmm. you actually needed to, uh, to to fight that and rather to listen. Can you just unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, when one is backed by a large organization and you do have huge weight that you can bring to bear on, on issues, um, it's easy or the temptation to unleash that rapidly is strong. Uh, but very often what happens is that one unleashes uh, irrelevance or additional cognitive load or additional angst into an environment because you're arriving with the wrong approach or the, or the wrong thoughts or the, or the wrong you know, physical responses. Um, so very important to be gathering insight and information from those who are in the face of that, of that event or of that problem first uh, to understand how we best support them uh, because they will know. Um, a, a much better analogy than, than the Christchurch tragedy actually was the response to the Kaikoura, um, Kaikoura earthquake um, also not that long ago. Um, we're a similar situation of trauma in a whole community um, where uh, we did actually have staff who we had a branch there. And our first response was, you know, how do we help? Well, firstly, how do we figure out that our folks that work in that branch are okay? And then what are they seeing in the environment as being the best way for us to show up and help? And and something interesting happened in that situation. If you, uh, if you remember, the whole town was cut off from the rest of the country. Um, so there were no services. There were no cell phone services. There were no... Uh, there are certainly no banking services. Um, and the folks on the ground very quickly spotted that there was an uncertainty caused amongst people who were struggling through this. And it was this, an uncertainty as to whether or not they could afford to pay for services or, or feed their families and the like. So as much as uh, there wasn't necessarily cash needed, it was the thing that was going to create great comfort. And that the institution of the branch within the organ, within the within the community felt like a pillar of, of stability. Uh, so rather than us arriving uh, with, with blankets and so on, which we also did, um, the thing that created the greatest comfort uh, in that community was actually arriving with a, a, a pause device, a process, and then access to cash, whether or not it was access to people's accounts for people who felt that they needed it. So in essence, we created a provision of, as, as I recall at the time, it was $200 or something like that, for anybody who wanted to come and, and draw cash, knowing that they weren't actually drawing it necessarily from their account. So we could make sure that they had in their hands something that gave them comfort that they could still, you know, access services that they felt that perhaps they wouldn't. Um, and once that comfort had been reestablished, it was it was almost palpable in the community as as their minds then started turning to, okay, I'm okay, I have this this tool in my hand 
that can help me, you know, barter or negotiate uh, around where they then turned their minds outwards and then started to, you know, work on work on the recovery process. Um, and if we hadn't understood that and we had just arrived, you know, as yet another set of hands and, and actions, we would probably have been in the way as opposed to starting to rebuild that confidence in the community really, really quickly. So the first step has to be to resist the urge to just act is your first urge has to be to first understand. And you know when you when you look at the uh, uh, at the military, um, there's a there's a fantastic technique called the OODA loop, um, which which is about about uh, observing, it's about uh, analyzing, and it's then about taking direct action and evaluating uh, the effect of that action. Uh, and in, in tragedies like this, um, that's your best approach. First understand, then respond appropriately, then evaluate whether or not the impact that you are aiming to have has been had, and then redirect. Thank you. The I would like to get uh, maybe a little bit or to to refresh the do the loop later in the in the conversation. Um, I when you were talking about Kakura earthquake and the 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 response, it reminded me of when I was on the receiving end of this during the uh, COVID, the initial uh, very uncertain period. Uh, I, I was lucky to have had two large corporate. Uh, clients who basically uh, the first thing they did is they ensured that all the small suppliers were taken care of and and that's really important in these things in fact uh, without naming names I, I could say that I was actually paid more promptly than than uh, usual. <laughs> so so that was really really welcoming for a small company to then for me to be able to take care of my employees who uh, I, I gotta say that I uh, we, we kept all of them on. Uh, one had subsequently moved on, but into a job. So she she had found a job, but uh, we, we didn't. Well, if you let if anybody you, go, if you and think of what would have, if you think of what would have led to that, um, you know, the first would have led to the first questions that would have been asked uh, is how does this pandemic affect uh, the organization itself? How does it affect people in the organization? What are the things that make the people in that organization possible, et cetera? So it would have been a very conscious approach of uh, starting in the center and then adding on all of those parts of the ecosystem that are critical um, for the organization and for the role that it plays in the community. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you experienced the benefit of that, uh, knowing that it, it was uh, not necessarily um, uh, a great and good conversation. It was actually about how do we safeguard this whole ecosystem, um, knowing that this thing that we were going into was going to be long running, right? So uh, knee-jerk reactions, uh, badly thought out knee-jerk reactions were actually going to be very destructive. Yeah. So the reason why I wanted to start with um, talking about crises is hopefully getting somewhat clear, um, also for the audience, without trivializing a great tragedy. Um, and again, I'm very conscious about making sure that, that, that it's clear. So it seems to me that outside of the humanistic, so the first learnings have to be humanistic, but outside of the humanistic learnings, uh, there are some strategic learnings for leaders and that relates to the topic of this podcast and these are the ones that I wanted to focus on. So dealing with anxiety in the team is the key topic that is important for experimentation, I believe. So in a corporate or any setting, experimentation can be unsettling. Uh, I'm not talking about blue versus red background on a web page, right? I'm talking about 
pursuing building a prototype of an app which may or may not work, uh, a process or a process improvement. That anything that sort of you only find out later on after potentially having invested uh, some money and for people who are working on these things, they have invested a lot of energy and uh, personal commitment. And sometimes, you know, things don't work out. And of course, in those cases, in, in the large corporate setting, it could lead to restructures, it could lead to, to business uh, transformation, that, or business unit uh, changes that could affect people's roles and livelihoods. So I would like you to discuss, have you learned, what have you learned during crisis and how is that applicable to the business as usual? Dealing with uncertainty it could be a lower level uncertainty, but more persistent during the, you know, experimenting, setting up experimentation. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, I think experimentation is a is a is a overused term. To be honest, not the not the not the fact of or the process of experimentation. Um, rather, the the perception or the potential perception that an experiment is not something from which you expect uh, any particular value, only observation, uh, which is not necessarily true. Knowing that value is observation of its own, is feedback of its own. Um, it also uh, tends to put the put the act of experimenting next to the running of your business as opposed to making it a part of the running of your business. Um, you know, so uh, i'm I'm a bit more of a fan of the of the concept of of progressive discovery or, prog or progressive learning uh, or iteration. Um, and when it comes to both crisis response and running a business, uh, one of the things that holds people back from that that process of, of, of iterative learning is that very often the way that our organizations are run and the way that they're set up um, actually Here, Davi provides insight into what's holding organizations back from truly learning and it relates to the perceived risk. He then goes on to talk about how to use progressive discovery to overcome fear and risk and biases such as sunk cost effect and endowment effect and how to create fast organizational learning. We also talk about fear of not being in control and what to do with it. All of this is available to Business Games Premium members. Has that changed over time? Have uh, our ability to, uh, as leaders, to give ourselves, um, you termed it, permission to be vulnerable, has that, has that changed over time? Uh, yes, I think it certainly has. Uh, the if you think about the generations of leadership training, um, you know, starting with the scientific management processes through to, uh, you know, KPI-based practices, et cetera, over the decades, uh, certainly it's only been the last, I don't know, five to 10 years or so that the leadership conversation has turned to uh, leader as servant, leader as support, leader as creator of conditions, as opposed to, you know, leader as director, leader as tasker. Um, it is not always a, com a comfortable change to make if one comes from comes from a, a, a structured uh, directive school of leadership. Um, but it is an important one uh, because it allows you to unlock the magnifying power of, of all the smarts, all the emotions, all the passion within a team um, and not then always just be dependent on the one person. 
So if I were to rephrase that to, or get it back to my, my theme about why now, why are we talking about experimenting in business now? Part of it is, could it be that? Part of it is just we are understanding a little bit more about how to be vulnerable and not having to have all the answers and therefore allowing ourselves to just ask questions. Is that, is, could, could that be one of the reasons? Yeah, I think, I think there's, a bit of, there's a bit of circularity in, in, in that, in that the, uh, the need to be vulnerable um, is potentially a response or the understanding that being vulnerable is useful and is important is potentially a response to some other revelations um, over the last decade or two. Um, and those relate to our understanding of what it means to be humans of what it means, uh, of what the what the multiplication effect is when when people feel comfortable to be creative and to be humans and to collaborate around stuff uh, together, and then the the developing understanding of what it takes as a leader to create the conditions for that to be true. Um, you know, so I don't I don't think that leadership vulnerability is is necessarily a cause. I think it I think it's a a learning and understanding of how to lead as opposed to the opposite being those conditions were created because leaders learn to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that makes sense. Uh, slightly related to this is some research I've um, read a long time ago, unfortunately I don't remember the source, but it was about, um, I believe, Broadway troops coming together and putting up shows and even uh, create like writers coming together and, and writing scripts. And what they found was that when People are really comfortable with each other when they're best friends, they're too relaxed. Um, when they're total strangers, they're too stressed. And there is that sort of golden middle in between where they're not too relaxed, but not too stressed. And this is where the, so, so you have safety on the one hand, but you have a little bit of, a, of an edge on the other hand, and it's, this is where the magic happens. Does that make sense? And is that relatable to, to a uh, corporate setting where you want, I think you want both safety, but you want to, you know, not 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 to feel like too comfortable, right? Because then, yeah. then potentially you're, you're just getting relaxed, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I certainly I can certainly understand both uh, both of those extremes. Um, and the fact is that uh, no change comes from a place of comfort. Uh, change comes from from discomfort. Um, and at the same time, great teams uh, operate together when they trust each other. Um, and they understand each other and they know each other and they value each other, not necessarily when they're only comfortable. Right? So the, 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 the great team dynamic, the, the great collaboration um, is essentially the, the creating the conditions to respond to the discomfort. Um, so the discomfort is important. There always needs to be some tension, but that shouldn't be the tension of people being uncertain about their place in a team or the team's place in an organization. It should be the, the discomfort uh, caused by the problem the team aims to solve, i.e. we have a market. We need to win in that market. We want to win in that market. We have a campaign we need to run. We have a match we need to win. That's your discomfort. Discomfort isn't, do I have a job tomorrow in this team? Absolutely. Makes sense. Part of uh, uh, driving or rising to the challenge of, of solving problems or even finding new problems to solve because I think that uh, problem definition in and of itself is really important and finding the right problem to work on is important is, uh, is, is curiosity. And to your point about uh, continuous learning, iterative learning, 
can only well I think it can only happen if you are kind of relentlessly curious and, and you, you want to find different things of doing, uh, different ways of doing things. Can you talk a little bit about the role of curiosity and also uh, the how we as leaders can help uh, open up curiosity both in ourselves as well as in, in our teams? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and in the corporate, in the corporate world, uh, curiosity is both absolutely critical and often almost systematically discouraged um, by the way that our organizations work or the processes under which under which our people work. And uh, and I've I've often found that the people who hold the keys to the improvement of our organizations, to the you know the the remedying of bottlenecks and the like, um, the custodians of you, if you will, often of those of those environments. Um, become very, very comfortable and very, they feel very safe in those processes um, and, and become less curious about whether there are other ways to do that. And I've always found it very useful for myself. Um, so let's just take a half step back. I think one of the most important jobs in a leader's world is to create clarity. Um, so conditions for people uh, to bring their whole selves and then the clarity as to the reason that we're all here. Those are two of the, of the key dimensions. Um, so my curiosity has always led me to those people who hold the keys to the kingdom and to ask them to explain things to me as if I was a five-year-old, you know, draw pictures for me, help me understand, make big blocks and little little words is, as I, is how I normally describe it. Um, and by the process of, of them helping me understand, um, continuously pushing me and what if we, and what if we could, and how would we uh, kind of question, which then starts igniting the curiosity in others. And I've never ceased to be amazed by the, by the creative uh, new solutions that come out of those very people when a couple of things happen. The first is that you're being respectful to the fact that they are, they are knowledge domain owners in an organization, right? And the organization has, been, has gotten to where it was off the back of the work that they had, had done to that day. Uh, the second was that you were being respectful of of their knowledge of how it could be, or at least you're respectful of the fact that they that they they have the the domain expertise to bring to a state of how could this be, and then that you're giving them the space to actually come up with with the solution or the or the next iteration of the organization, and I've I've yet to come across somebody who doesn't respond to that. Um, often there comes a time where, or the first iteration of that will be the easy answers. Right, it's because every every organization is a whole bunch of um, should we should we call it uh, sacrificial activity that's e that's easy to give away, and if you continue that conversation of inquiry, um, you can almost call it uh, leading inquiry, if you will. Uh, folks, folks get more and more creative, and eventually they get to the point where there are no more easy giveaways, where they have to truly think about the heart of the problem, and that's the place where some people shine, some people don't. But certainly their minds would have been stretched to the point where they can't go back to what the original state was. So curiosity um, or inquiry, I think, is one of the keys to successful businesses today and into the future. And one of our jobs as leaders is to is to help people to rediscover that curiosity, not just assume that the people we have are not the ones who can be creative and curious, because that's not fair to them or, you know, or to the organization either. Uh, yeah, and, and believing in the growth mindset, I believe that, I mean, everybody uh, has a capacity to be curious. As children, we're all curious, right? Because we learn to, right. to do stuff. So uh, it, so I don't really 
buy when some people tell me, oh, I'm just, you know, not as curious. Like, no, no, you are. But uh, talk about uh, the, uh, there is a technique you told me about, which is the blank sheet conversation. Yeah. Can you uh, explain how that works and how that could actually help? Because I believe that that formalizes some of, uh, of what we just talked about. Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, have, having, you know, had the opportunity to, to lead very significant changes in a number of organizations, um, the blank sheet, the blank sheet process has allowed me to do two things. The one is to awaken I wish I had known about the blank sheet process years ago, when I was only starting out leading my own team and trying to encourage curiosity and creativity as a young leader. Listen to Davi's tips on how to make this work in the full episode available to premium members only. You can subscribe at www.business-games.ai for only 30 US cents a day. So it's one of my very favorite techniques. Um, many people I've worked with over the years will recognize the conversation, I'm sure. Um, and I still have some of those blank sheets, actually. Um, they've been great conversations over the decades. Nice. I've no, In terms of language, I've noticed that you have never uh, a single time used the word KPI. Uh, <laughs> but you, you, you talk about goals. Is that so changing the language and making it making it safe and making it related to the problem to be solved rather than, you know, a performance. Does yeah. that, uh, how, how helpful is that? Um, that's extremely helpful. Um, so the, the, la the language of KPI, uh, we, we need to be a little bit careful of. Um, I prefer, I prefer uh, the, con the concept of useful measurement uh, as opposed to KPI. KPI is extremely corporate and KPI is very often used, uh, used to punish um so as as much as kpis are necessary at certain levels of the organization i fully believe in them as a as a a lens on how we have been doing um and okrs as a lens on how we want to be doing um in the kind of improvement cycle i've just been talking about i would much rather have had somebody say okay well you know the the nine months to or the 18 months to nine months to four and a half months that in itself could be a kpi right but we didn't articulate it that way uh, what we said and what somebody would easily come up with say, yeah, in order for us to know that it's getting shorter, we would need to measure that. So yeah, that's right. We would need to measure that. And how would you measure that? And there we go. And uh, perhaps if we observe this, it would be a useful measure. And allowing people to define that measure, but within the objective they're trying to achieve, right? So they've set the objective is we want it to be nine months to four and a half, blah, blah, blah. They've also then said, but how will we know? Well, we'll look at this thing. And, and rethinking the context of KPI is not something that you have to be subject to but something that enables you to achieve and to run the business the way you want to run it. Uh, and it sounds like a subtle change, but we have to put, we have to put people and their creativity and the work before we put the measure. Unfortunately, when presented with a dashboard full of KPIs, we tend to put the measure before the people and the work. Yeah, it's effectively what you said is that if, if people uh, creatively solve a problem, they already themselves want to know whether it's working or not and then they come up with a way to figure out whether they're Correct. on the right track and that of course generates a lot of you know much more buy-in than yeah. imposing an external an external metric yeah that's right and then, and then if, if you lead an organization you need to be careful how you how you yourselves or we ourselves use uh, those kpis you know um having seen a number of, of of agile transformations implementations of agile models in different places um there are a, a large number of measures that are that are 100 contextual that are only there for the benefit of a team that very quickly get elevated into being kpis 
and then very quickly become used as comparisons between teams and that kind of thing, which, you know, as, as sense makers, we, we like to do that stuff. Uh, I think here I'm thinking of measures such as velocity, for instance, team velocity um, is a good example. It's very often or very easily used to compare velocity improvements between teams, um, but is in fact 100% not what that measure is for. And in fact, the measure of velocity itself is a bit of, is a, bit of a red herring. Um, but when you're far away from the work and you want some kind of view of what's going on, you tend to gravitate towards things that look like comparable numbers. Um, and it leads us back to that curiosity thing, right? As a leader, you have to be a, you have to be going to the work to understand what is a useful, what is a sensible measure, rather than what is a what is a facade that keeps you away from from how things are actually going. Just very briefly on that velocity, can I explain it for the audience who, who you know might not be used to uh, IT terms? And... Yes. Uh, so one of the challenges of, of, of creative work or knowledge work, uh, which, which software development in, uh, really is, is that there is no particular uh, unit measure of throughput. Uh, so if you were uh, on a production line, you would be measuring attack uh, time and, use, and, and, and uh, units produced and that kind of stuff. Uh, but in software, there isn't such a thing because every, every solution you create is new and different. Um, so there is a technique used or a number of techniques used to try and quantify effort, if you will, uh, using story points or whichever technique, uh, t-shirt sizing or whichever technique that a team uses. And these things, quite frankly, are, are thumb sucks. You know, they are actually people using uh, their anecdotal experience to try and create a relative sizing of one piece of effort versus another. And if you think about the fact that every piece of work is nominally unique, uh, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit of estimation theater, uh, no better than that. Uh, and then the measure of uh, the measure of velocity is the number of those arbitrary measures that a team can get through in a set period, uh, often two weeks, uh, a sprint, um, and then you know trying to observe an improvement in the throughput of that team based on the improvement of their velocity. But you can already tell from the way I've articulated that that the whole thing is a house of cards. So when you then take that and you extrapolate that into being into a rolled up measure of multiple teams together, you know, one team has a velocity of five, another has a velocity of ten. Therefore, our collective velocity is fifteen for this unit. Uh, the whole thing is 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 a complete stack of fallacies. However, when you roll it up like that, the minute you create a dashboard out of something that looks like science and it looks like fact, and for a manager or a leader, it's very easy to gravitate towards that and then start poking questions like, oh, why is that team not improving? Why is that team faster than this team? When the actual concept of fast in this context is also a red herring. Um, so it's a, it's, a very, it's a very deep hole that you could lead yourself into as a leader. Uh, whereas if you were having the conversation about the problem to be solved, and the measures that were created by that team to understand that they are solving the problem, then you're in a very different space of leadership and you're asking a very different type of question. Then you're not going to be asking, why is your velocity higher or lower? Or, you know, why is this team faster than this team? Then you're going to be asking, how do we know that we're solving the problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that uh, I think that's a good time to pivot to a discussion about um, senior leadership teams and boards, because everything that we've talked about uh, right up to, up till now was about leading a leading a team and you are the focal point. Now, if you are um, part of a senior leadership team and you're gathering around the uh, the table and also you're working with the board and um, I believe you are uh, on, on some board positions so around the board table, how do you, because you can't lead change just from within your unit. So how do you bring 
everybody together and what kind of thinking do you need to have around around a senior leadership table for example mm. yeah so i've had the privilege of being around those for a long time and through multiple large changes in organizations uh and the the kind of of, of frictions and uncertainties that I've seen uh, happen around those tables have almost invariably come down to um, a small number of factors and probably the most important of those being. There are two types of people who would definitely benefit from Davi's insight into senior leadership teams and board's decision-making. First of all, if you're a senior leader or director, well, that's the obvious point. But maybe even more importantly, if you're an aspiring leader or someone who reports to the board or works with the board, these insights will help you understand how the boards think and it will help you help them be more effective. When I did my chartered assessment with the New Zealand Institute of Directors, we spent a lot of time talking about how to become a more effective board. I took those learnings into the board I was serving and have an inquiry session into what value we thought we were bringing. Now, after years of talking to many New Zealand directors, it still amazes me how few boards actually ask those types of questions. How effective are we? Now, back to my conversation with Davi. In the full interview, he talks about what befalls the boards and indeed senior leadership or senior executive teams, what frictions exist, why and what to do about them. Become a premium member and find out. See show notes for how to subscribe. If you remember, I ran the the, the privacy uh, project for a while, and even you know, understanding of what it means to protect the data was uh, had had different interpretations for yeah. for different people, which is, yeah. uh, which is quite interesting. So let's uh, let's now move on to the homework, and let's uh, send the homework to like what of two types, right? Um, one, as I said, it's uh, what are the sources of information that that you find helpful for uh, decision-making at large and how, how do you become a better, um, better at identifying the bets, better at, at identifying uh, the, at dealing with uncertainty and how, how do you, like, which sources do you go to, where do you learn from? And then the second thing is what, um, tangible day-to-day -day kind of practices that could be useful within this topic. Mm, okay, so um, I, 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 read a, I read a fair amount, uh, as you can tell from, from the book rack behind me, uh, and I read quite, quite widely, um, and that'll be everything from, from science fiction to, to business books. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of things like, uh, of people like Daniel Kahneman, uh, Dan Pink, Jeffrey Pfeffer, and, and others um, who are a spectrum of reading, uh, not only of technique, but also of challenge, um, of challenging of assumptions. Uh, so I really enjoy that. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, one of the techniques that I've, that I've come to relatively late in my career has been journaling. Um, and journaling has been valuable for me because it puts a layer of conscious contemplation of, of the day and of conversations of the day and of decisions you've made on the day uh, that allow you to refer backwards. And even if you don't refer backwards, it forces you to sit down and think through what's happened in your day. Um, so and for me, it has a number of benefits. The one is obviously capturing decisions I made, how I made them, what I was thinking about at the time. Um, but that also allows me to, to put, the, put the day to bed at the end of it. 
So it gives me great peace of mind knowing that I've, I've done that little piece of homework every single day. It's something that I recommend to leaders whenever they undergo large transformations. Uh, it's one that very few leaders take me up on, including myself, to be completely honest, until maybe a year or so ago. Uh, and now my day ends with it, and I find it really, really valuable. Uh, if, we, if we don't think about the actions we've taken, then we're not actually learning from it. Then we're just responding. The um, I've got a couple of uh, sort of rapid fire questions because I I made notes from the uh, previous recording where the audio got corrupted but the, but the notes are still there and there were a couple of things that I wanted to just uh, uh, throw at you within here uh -huh. maybe you could say one one or two words leadership BS <laughs> yes. Uh, one of my favorite uh, academic authors, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Pfeffer, Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford University, uh, wrote a book called Leadership BS. And what he has done is taken uh, many of the popular leadership styles, style definitions, such as servant leadership and others, and then uh, went and found or looked for correlations between organizational performance and the application of those, of those leadership styles. Um, and he found there to be only a very loose correlation at best uh, between uh, application of leadership style and, and organizational success. That made him curious about something else, and that was uh, he went and examined whether or not some of the proponents of those leadership styles uh, today actually did apply them at the time that they were leading the organizations that made them famous. And, and he found there to be, shall we say, little correlation. <laughs> so it's a, it's, a it's a challenging book to read. Uh, because it certainly does poke holes uh, in, in our deeply held beliefs about many of these styles. Uh, but in his own words, um, I asked him, the I made the observation to him once over dinner. I said to him that, I, that it was a little bit depressing to read that. And he said, my job is not to, my job is not to buoy you up. My job is to do the research and to show you the facts. <laughs> Which is fair enough. Right, right. So um, map is not the terrain? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, is an important set of lessons about, about our assumptions and our assumption sets and what causes those. It's easy for us to get lost in or, or to get fixated on, on def problem definitions or our perceived uh, view of that specific problem. And until we actually go to the terrain and test that, uh, what we're actually responding to is an image as opposed to the reality. Um, this manifests in many different ways. And the, 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 the obvious reference is to the fact that uh, looking at a paper map uh, doesn't tell you whether the brown patch is is, is mud uh, or sand. Or well, it should, but anyway, that's a loose analogy, but you get where I'm going with that. And the only way that you would know is to actually go there. Um, and when you operate your organization from uh, the back of filtered definitions from uh, frameworks without going and testing those frameworks against reality, then you then you run the risk of, of should we say, uh, misunderstood problem sets, misunderstood definitions, and misguided direction. So the answer to that is go and find out. Do the Gimba. Do the Gimba. That's, that's, a, good, uh, that's a good thing. Gimba technique. What is it? As you have noticed, we do not run advertisements. This is executive education delivered in the podcast form, and we depend on paid premium subscriptions for our income. Therefore, insights like Davi's use of Gemba technique are behind the paywall. You can subscribe at www.business-games.ai to obtain a personal podcast link and listen to the full episode. Uh, and, and in the teams around you. 
Um, I once heard it said, and it was quite a quite a stark reminder to myself, that your your diary or your calendar is a reflection of your priorities. So if your diary is full with with back to back administrative style meetings, and not full of help, let me understand what's going on in my business or what my customers need from us, or are we serving them well? Well, that's reflecting your priorities right there. Hmm. Um, the final thing. Um, plugs. You um, basically your your work now is speaking to younger, smaller companies, and not only, but uh, helping them on their journey of continuous learning. Can you can you talk about that? Like, what yeah. what would the audience uh, find helpful from what you are doing, and how would they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spend a lot of time now. Um, you mentioned earlier doing advisory work and, and board work and that kind of and that kind of thing. Um, and it comes from two dimensions. The one is having been an enterprise technology leader for you know a long, long time. I won't put it won't put decades on that, but it's been a really long time. And then also having been through numerous transformation journeys at different scales. Um, so what I don't propose or promise to do is arrive with, with answers necessarily, but certainly with lots of learnings and certain and lots of leadership techniques to help one find answers um, and act as a, as a coach and a guide uh, along these complicated journeys of improvement that organizations go on. Um, it, it's mostly conversations with executives, executive teams, uh, boards, um, and involves a fair number of, of gambers in other people's businesses. Uh, to observe and to discuss and, and to see and also to role model a little bit um, how, how one does that respectfully. Um, the best way to get in touch with me if, if you were interested in, in having such a conversation in your business is, is via LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm Davi Ulifi on LinkedIn or Davi O. Um, and uh, yeah, let's uh, reach out and get, get in touch. We'll put uh, all of the links uh, to, to your profile into the show notes so people will be able to easily get there. A uh, question, a practical question. Uh, we are, uh, I think we will have a fairly sizable international audience. Uh, are you uh, able to do the work that you do uh, over over the internet? Because now nobody can travel, right? So <laughs> Well, if, if, uh, if the recent pandemic and ongoing pandemic has taught us anything is that the world is only a click away. So yes, most definitely. And I, and I do speak to uh, companies beyond New Zealand quite regularly. Excellent. Okay, cool. Davi, this has been a pleasure uh, twice over. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's, it's very good. I, uh, yeah, it's, thank you very much. Andre, thank you so much for the time. And, uh, and to your listeners, enjoy the series. Thank you.